listeners. I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? In each short conversation, I ask a writer a non-writing related question that lets you and me get to know them just a little bit better as a person. I'm an author myself, so I'm always looking for an excuse to ask the odd questions. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Stephen Kiernan, an award-winning newspaper journalist who has two books of nonfiction to his credit, as well as four critically acclaimed novels. Last year saw the release of Stephen's latest book, Universe of Two, a love story set in 1944 amid the development of the atomic bomb. Stephen is also a longtime healthcare advocate and has spoken and consulted around the country about hospice and palliative care. Hey, Stephen, thanks for being a guest on my show. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Stephen, I want to start by talking about your novel, Universe of Two. The story is this fictionalized account of Charlie Fisk, who some readers might know as America's preeminent pipe organ builder. But well before that, Charlie was a gifted mathematician who was drafted straight from Harvard to contribute to the Manhattan Project and was ordered to help build the detonator for the atomic bomb. Stephen, what was it in particular that drew you to Charlie Fisk as a character or made you think, hey, I want to make a novel out of this young man's story? Well, you know, I happened to read an essay about Charles Fisk in the Georgia Review that was fascinating. And it was about conscience huh. and about this guy's work on the bomb, which he did with a clear conscience. But then after the war, he really rejected opportunities to continue as a physicist and instead became a great um, cathedral organ builder. And so I started just researching him. I found out he had a biographer already, but you know, I got a lot of his history and I interviewed his daughter and I went to the factory that still makes his organs today, Magnificent Instruments. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna write about this guy per se, but those ingredients of his life could be the skeleton of a novel about a young man who's you know, very smart, and instead of going off to war, he's engaged with the enemy in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And at first, he doesn't know what it is he's working on. And as he becomes aware of the order of magnitude of this weapon that theoretically could do so much destruction, he has a lot of misgivings. And uh, yet he's always been a good boy. He literally was an altar boy in the choir. And so he feels conflicted about that. And he's got pretty colorful, kind of know-it-all girlfriend, sweetheart, who uh, anytime that he has qualms, she says, hey, you know, soldier up, you know, there's a war on, be a man. And of course, the bomb is built and it works exactly as intended or roughly. And uh, he is stunned by what it accomplished. And, and she is stunned by what she urged him to do. And now they've got these deeds on their consciences. And so together, sort of with one another for ballast, they set off to see if they can find redemption. You know, in Universe of Two, the fictional Charlie, as you said, faces this terrible moral dilemma and is uneasy with it. And he has to deal with the choice he makes for the rest of his life. I thought it was interesting then in your other book set during World War II, A Baker's Secret, your young heroine, Emma, she also faces a moral dilemma and has to weigh the consequences of her own act of resistance. I was wondering, as the author of these two characters, Stephen, if you had to compare or contrast the actions of Charlie. And Emma, do you think in the end one was braver or behaved with more moral integrity? 
You know, I would like to look at that question head on and then dodge it. Okay. Because <laughs> here's what those two stories have in common. First, it is that it is a, a warfare story that is not about heroes or generals or uh, particularly brave people in battle. This is about ordinary, innocent folk caught up in something and getting in way over their heads. And both of them, I think, are in that predicament. And they have different kinds of ways. I think that M has more courage right in the moment. And that Charlie, because he's been such a good boy all his life, that finding his courage takes a long time. But here's why I really want to dodge the question. Because if you look at the two forms of storytelling, of large-scale form and storytelling in American culture, since 9-11, Hollywood has believed and made billions of dollars in this belief that the story that Americans want is of a complicated, violent world with identifiable concrete evil that will be conquered by some sort of a person of advanced capacity and higher moral character, and we will all be redeemed and delivered through that person's superpowers. At the same time, there has come in the storytelling of the book form uh, a whole literature of World War II, so many spectacular novels. And I wasn't thinking about this when I started writing World War II fiction. I just found it fertile ground for fiction. But there are so many fantastic books now that are being written about World War II. And what they have in common is not the superhero, but instead individuals trying to deal with these geopolitical gigantic issues with some kind of humility and humor and compassion and courage. And to me, those are just way more interesting stories. Can you think of a time in your own life where you felt you've been put in that type of challenging position where the right thing to do came with tangible risks, or maybe you weren't even sure what the right thing to do was? I worked in newspapers for 20 years, and I think I had a very small version of that almost every day. Hmm. It took a certain courage to say things that were hard to say, that people weren't going to want to hear about themselves or their community or their society or their systems. And there'd be somebody who hated you every day for the things you had to say. That's nothing at all on a scale of what my characters have experienced. But I have known that challenge and sometimes not knowing what's the best thing to do. I'm going to talk about The Hummingbird a little okay. bit. It's about a hospice nurse, Deborah, whose caregiving skills are <laughs> sorely tested by both a difficult patient, but also by her husband, who's recently back home after his third deployment in Iraq, and he's clearly suffering from PTSD. You know, and Stephen, there's one theme in that book that was about the loving lie. Mm. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about that what you meant by the loving lie and the purpose you think it serves. Sweetheart, do these pants make my butt look big? <laughs> no, darling. They're very flattering to your figure. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a good, obviously comic answer, but I think um, the loving lie is about um, not being totally accurate with the truth in order to protect someone's heart. When you're talking to a man who's terminally ill and he wants to know the facts about his life expectancy, uh, what is the loving answer right? And, and what is the honest answer? And if they're not the same, what, what diplomatic ground do you give yourself? What poetic license? Um, I don't know the answer to it, but I like the concept for the people in this story because they all have wounds and they need tender care. The hummingbird of course is fictitious, but it clearly illuminates 
the value of hospice and some of the misunderstandings around caring for the dying. And I know you've also written a nonfiction book, Last Rites, about this subject. And for years, you've been a strong voice for end-of-life care. I wondered why do you devote such a good deal of page space and your time to this issue? Well, the first thing is uh, I was educated by the, the deaths of my parents. Uh, in my father's case, we spared no medical extravagance. He had a month in an ICU uh, at incredible expense and all kinds of interventions when there was really never a chance he was ever going to come mm. back. And and four years later or so, you know, my mother died at home in her bed with her prayer book in her hand and her affairs in order and surrounded by loving family members. And that was the difference to me between the high intervention approach to mortality and um, and a more compassionate approach to hospice. And um, so so it starts with my parents. And then then I started to do research about it. And I did write a nonfiction book about it, Last Rites. And it was about how we could do a better job at caring for people who are terminally ill. And what happened is, as I did the book tour, and then I did some speaking on it, and then a bunch of years of consulting on it, is that people would tell me their stories. It was so urgent for them that I hear this story and just validate their suffering. So in addition to the work I was doing, I was privileged to be given hundreds and hundreds of those stories. And so it wasn't enough. I needed to write a novel about it too. I'm going to do an abrupt switch of gears here. Okay. And I want to ask you a craft question. Oh, Because I noticed in The Hummingbird and in other novels that you write from a woman's point of view. And I wondered if you find that challenging or you really enjoy writing from another gender's perspective or if you do anything different to get into that headspace. Um, yeah, I, this is a question. I mean, I think about this a lot, as you might imagine, and with some um, intimidation. Um, so here's the first thing. You know, we have had in the literature of Western culture, we have about 5,000 years of examining the male manifestations of heroism. Hmm. And I won't say that they're exhausted, but certain ones have come up a few times. You know, if someone says they're going to make another Superman series of movies, right? We just, we know, we know, thank you. Kryptonite. Yeah, we get it. Um, and meanwhile, there are so, so many versions of heroism for women that have not been explored. The craft answer, I think, is the test of any narrative voice is whether or not the author disappears. And I need to create language and a way of thinking and a kind of internal rhetoric that each person has in the way that they behave that is consistent in a way where the reader forgets that they are looking at black marks on a white page. They forget that it's a book. They forget me completely. They probably forget the title and they are just in this dream that occurs in their imaginations. And so that same challenge is there if I'm writing with a female narrator. In my case, I think I'm fortunate in that most of publishing is a matriarchy. And so, you know, my agent is female, my editor is female, her boss is female, the marketing director is female, my publicist is female, and they will not hesitate to let me know when I'm out of line. But what happens more often is that they'll read something and say, wait, if Brenda is waiting for Charlie to take her on a date and he's late, she'll go check her lipstick. You know, they'll give me something that I wouldn't have thought of that actually just makes the character a little more human and makes it even more so that I vanish and the reader just sees the Brenda that their mind creates. 
I also want to talk about your other nonfiction book, Authentic Patriotism, because this is my kind of book in that it features everyday people who have taken it upon themselves to change their communities in actionable ways. I wondered, was there any particular person that prompted you to write that book? No, it's more like a particular need. And it's funny, the way you just described it, it sounds like it leads right into the fiction that I've written, which I never really thought about. (laughs) Yeah, it does, Um, actually. uh, Yeah, so that book is, you know, 60 people, six of them in some detail, who started out without money or fame or power, and yet they were able to solve some of the toughest problems that our country faces. And I loved the research for that book and getting to spend time with these amazing people. And it started out, I was just going to write about one guy. I was going to write about Bobby Muller, and he's a Vietnam veteran who uses a wheelchair and who formed Vietnam Veterans of America and then was part of the initial group for the International Coalition of Banned Landmines, which won a Nobel Peace Prize for getting 108 nations to uh, sign a treaty. It was put together not by the UN or any country. It was put together by the coalition. And so this guy did amazing things. And, um, And I wanted to write a biography of him. And he said, no. And I asked him about four times. And he said, no, every time. But I just kept thinking about the job that he had done. And I thought, I wonder if anyone else is doing that. And then I found that people were doing it all over. And um I wish if I had any book that had spectacular commercial success, I wish it was that one, not because of any money or fame or any of that, but because I think people would behave differently if they considered the well-being of the nation their personal responsibility. Authentic Patriotism came out in 2010, if I'm correct. Yes. Do you think, given the political nightmare of the last several years and all the divisiveness it's fostered that people are more or less drawn now to that kind of progressive activism that you showcased in the book. Here's what I believe. Um, everything that we're reading about division uh, is, is true. And what I think is that we have forgotten what we have built together despite our divisions. And I think about how everyone attaches kind of so many good emotions to Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. And it's because it's like, look what we did. And that was back like with slide rules, right? Look what we did. And that's kind of the theme of the novel I'm writing right now. And is is, you know, to look at what we've done and, and uh, how amazing, how bountiful, how beautiful this nation is. And if we think about what we've been able to accomplish together, maybe we can do some more. Lovely. In fiction and in nonfiction, you clearly don't shy away from the hard topics, war and morality and end of life care, but there's also this strong element of hope and human spirit in your books. So I was wondering overall, do you consider yourself more of a pessimist or an optimist? (laughs) <laughs> I remember somebody once asked Kafka that question, and he said, um, I have great hope, just not for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I am absolutely an optimist. If anything, I'm maybe Pollyanna. I'm very sunny side. And, you know, I think the alternative is despair. Who wants to live there? I think the optimists are a lot more fun. That's who I want to go dancing with. <laughs> well, I have one last question for you, Stephen. If you were to write a six word memoir, what would it be? Being a good father matters more. How many kids do you have? Two. And a whole bunch of surrogate kids. You know, uh, there have been boys around me in gangs for a lot of years. And, uh, um, you know, when you make art and it takes so much of your mind and heart, we can sometimes lose sight of our real legacy. 
and I'm a very, very fortunate dad. So that, that matters more to me. That's a beautiful memoir. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for this time and your thoughtful answers. I really appreciate it. It was really, truly my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Stephen Kiernan and all of his critically acclaimed works, be sure to visit his website, stephenpkiernan.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, joanybcole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.